following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcasting Network. For a full list of our shows, as well as breaking sports news and engaging feature stories, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com. Hey everyone, Chris Horwoodell here with another episode of Tales from the Association. My guest today is someone I was incredibly excited to talk to, four-time NBA champion and teammate of some of the NBA's greatest all-time players, Will Perdue. You never really know what you're going to get with someone as accomplished as Will, but I have to say he was a fantastic guest. Will gives some interesting insights into a pair of basketball's best organizations and definitely knew what the audience wanted when he told a handful of fascinating stories about Michael Jordan. That's it for the intro. Here's this week's episode of Tales from the Association featuring the great Will Perdue. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it as much as I did making it. Tales from the Association, yeah, it's going down. This the podcast, yeah, you heard it all around. Players hit us with that career, cause you know that basketball, man, is not always there. Sometimes it come and go from the recruitment to the college phase, back to the NBA draft, yeah, that's not days. Playing internationally, and at the life at a basketball, man, they're gonna tell us all how it go. See, story is how now, now you know. Tales from the Association. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to Tales from the Association. I'm Chris Horwoodell, and my guest today is former Vanderbilt center turned NBA first-round pick, turned four-time NBA champion, turned broadcaster, Will Purdue. Will, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, no problem, Chris. Looking forward to it. It's amazing is uh, people have these podcasts, <laughs> and uh, you know, you get you get a chance to talk to these people. You you're kind of in- anticipating what the questions may be. So. Uh, <laughs> It'll be interesting to see uh, the direction that we go and uh, the kind of questions that I face. Okay, you're anticipating the questions. What is the one question you expect to get? Um, well, I could probably say uh, the usual. Okay. You know that I've been asked all my life is you know what was it like to play with Michael Jordan? So mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say that I have a specific response. A lot of times that answer could depend on the mood I'm in, how the question is asked. But uh, there are plenty of Michael Jordan stories, that's for sure. All right, well, we will get to that before we leave, I'm sure of that. <laughs> so let's let's start at the beginning of your career here. You came out of Merritt Island High School, and you had a very strong career. What's the college recruiting process like for you at that time? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting that you asked that question. Yeah, Considering everything that's going on, I mean, I, I currently live in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm. Oh. So anybody that follows sports knows that, uh, you know, what's going on with uh, the university, Rick Pitino, uh, the Adidas sh- uh, shoe apparel company. Mm. You know, I always tell people when I was recruited, I must, I must have not really been that good because I wasn't <laughs> offered anything out of college. You know, and I, I start to wonder, I'm like, well, what did I miss here? Right. You know, I thought I was a pretty good player coming out of high school, but, uh, you know, it all started with the smaller schools. Mm-hmm. And let's go back for a second and just and just talk about Merritt Island real quick. As you remember back in the early 80s, because I graduated high school in 1983, Merritt Island, I mean, not even just Merritt Island, but the state of Florida was basically – 
you know, football and baseball. Sure. And quite honestly, our team at Merritt Island, uh, I think we only had eight players until football was over. And then the football <laughs> players came over to play basketball, you know, to try to stay in shape after their season was over. But, you know, you're talking about a school that had double digit, double figure players on a yearly basis mm-hmm. go D1 from oh, every position, you know, offensively, defensively, special teams. So that's kind of what I was up against. So, you know, a basketball player from this predominantly football school being recruited wasn't necessarily big news, but, uh, you know, it was surprising. And it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a process that on one hand you enjoy because it's kind of like a, Hey, people have noticed the hard work that I put in. People are noticing, you know, how good of a player I am. But yeah. at the other, on the other end, what people don't realize is it's, it's tedious, mm-hmm. not only for me, but for my parents. I mean, I was getting, I mean, just imagine the individual that's listening to this podcast going to your mailbox every single day and just having it stuffed mm-hmm. with flyers, junk mail, and you sit there and you're like, I'm tired of getting this crap in the mail. Now, not necessarily crap, but it yeah. was just every every type of uh, mail, uh, swag, whatever you can think of came on a daily basis to try to sway you uh, towards a specific university. Like I said, it started out with smaller universities. I, I specifically remember uh, Fordham was, I think, one of the first ones. And oh, I'm sorry, not Fordham, Furman. I apologize, mm-hmm. Furman. And they were pretty aggressive. And and then it went from them to, you know, then you started with the, the, the big D1 schools. And just to kind of narrow it down. I mean, I ended up visiting Georgia Tech, Virginia, Vanderbilt, and Purdue. And if you can notice, my parents had a heavy influence on my goal was to go to college and get an education. Basketball was a vehicle for me to do that. Sure. Sure. And that's that's how it should be. That's that's what is right about this system rather than this the one and done culture that we have today. Well, it's the culture has changed. Sure. Um, you know, you, when, when I played, if you left early, it was considered hardship. Oh, right. You know, you, you, I can't remember. I think there was there was a process you had to go through, and a specific guy that I remember was Derek McKee from Alabama. Mm-hmm. He declared hardship, went to the league early. Now, I, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I'm pretty positive that it was you know, for family reasons, mm-hmm. you know, some, something that happened where, you know, he was in a position where, um, you know, it was financially necessary for him to move on and go to the league because of something that was going on personally in his life. But the main point was this was a hardship uh, decision. It wasn't like I'm going to college for one year and then I'm done. I mean, that, I don't want to say it didn't exist, but mm. it's, it's, I mean, it, it's it's more anticipated now than it was even thought of back then. Right. So you pick Vanderbilt, and uh, your freshman season, you only play you know, six and a half minutes a game. How hard was it transitioning from being a superstar in high school to sort of a bench guy in college? Uh, it was twofold for numerous reasons. 
you know, I fully expected to step on campus and to have an immediate impact. Right. But what I didn't think about was uh, not the game from an from a uh, strength perspective, mm. the game uh, from a mental perspective. I, I always felt like I had the skill set, but then at the same time, I, I walk on to Vanderbilt's campus, six ten, one ninety five, oh, and okay. I, I I literally I learned about two weeks into uh, my freshman year. I'm not even talking about practice starting, but, you know, you step on campus, you have informal meetings, uh, you start your preseason workout program, and then, you know, you play pickup games with everybody. So it's basically five on five, and, you know, the whole team is there. And I just remember physically just getting abused as far as just being bounced around like a pinball. Yeah, and mo- uh, you know, I could throw out a bunch of names. Probably a name that people will uh, remember is a guy named Jeff Turner. Played on the Olympic Absolutely. team, played with the Nets, played overseas, and you know he was six nine, two fifty. I was six ten, one ninety five, <laughs> and he's just he was. It, it, there's a, that old saying: he was farmer strong, and it was just <laughs> it, it was it was no match. And then that's that kind of helped me mentally adjust to the fact that I got a lot of work to do to the point where I was like, all right, I got basically, you know, six to eight weeks to prepare for practice. And then another four weeks to prepare for the season. I got to find ways that I could be effective, but it just, it took a while for me to, uh, you know, physically adapt Mm to the level of play in the college level, but it took a while for my body to catch up. You know, I was obviously a late bloomer, but uh, I just, at one point I knew, you know, there's probably a good chance that I don't play a lot (laughs) because physically I just was struggling to handle the way the game was played at the next level. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand on, because we've seen sort of a philosophical change in the way basketball is played over the last 20 plus years. Where do you stand on the more modern, you know, back to the basket big man versus, to, well, the the older back to the basket big man versus the more modern, everybody's a stretch player. Well, and you know, it, it's the reason being is because you become more valuable. Mm-hmm. I'll I always tell this story about guys that have vision, and when I say vision, I'm going to tell a story. I finished playing. I'm working for uh, ESPN radio. We're, we're doing a, a Mavs game. And one of my jobs as the analyst is you got to, you know, interview a coach and then a player. Well, mm-hmm. we, one of the players we're interviewing is Dirk Nowitzki. And, you know, we just, Dirk comes over, great guy. But, hey, you ready to do this? Yeah. And as I'm doing the interview with him, I noticed that he's taller than me. <laughs> but, not by a lot, but I'm just yeah. like, this guy's taller than me. Yeah. And you look at the program, it says he's 6'11". So we finished the interview, and I stopped, and I said, hey, how tall are you? And he just kind of smirked. He goes, 6'11". I'm like, no, you're not. I said, you're taller than that. What's going on here? And I, I, I honestly, I think he's about 7'1". Uh-huh. And he finally just said, listen, if I tell everybody I'm 7 feet, they're going to try to put me down in the post, put my back to the basket, and tell me that I'm a center. 
I'm not a center. So Dirk was kind of like, in my opinion, one of the first ever stretch players, even though we didn't use that term back then. Yeah. And you also got to remember, he didn't, he didn't like just come to the NBA and succeed right away. I mean, there were people that were just like, you know, the Mavericks, they just, uh, that, that was a wasted pick. This, this kid's struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, he can't play in the NBA. His game uh, doesn't relate. Well, we all, obviously we know that's not the case now, but, you know, it, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's all become about trying to, uh, you know, make the game more fan friendly. Sure. Um, there still are a lot of people out there that love the half court, grind them out, uh, physical type basketball games that, as you just said, are, are more, are considered more now that everybody uses the term old school than what we're seeing now to where it's just, it's kind of like run and gun. Yeah. And you got to remember this. This is this didn't just happen. You know, you got to remember, uh, and I, I forget the name of the coach. The Denver Nuggets tried this in the sense of run and gun, but the problem is they played no defense. So defense is still an important part of the game, but it just it's not as important as it once was. And the game itself has changed in the sense that every player out there feels like to be more effective and to be able to stick on a roster, you don't necessarily have to be a good three-point shooter, but you have to prove that, it, you know, you can knock down a three periodically, yeah. as you just pointed out, to stretch out the defense so that you can open up the paint and, and make it a more free-flowing, offensive-minded game. Yeah. Well, that, that kind of makes me sad, though. I grew up on these NBA on NBC triple headers, and, uh, you know, you'll never get to see the Charles Oakleys or the Dale Davises or the Antonio Davises, those bruising power forwards. That The bruising power forward position is gone in the NBA today. Oh, it, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, that usually, as you just pointed out, was kind of like the uh, – you know, they didn't, the league didn't like it, but that was kind of like your enforcer. Yeah. You know, that was the guy that uh, did all the grunt work as far as defensively. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. Horace Grant used to complain about how they, we didn't run any plays for him. Mm-hmm. And Phil Jackson used to say, well, if you want to score more, go get more offensive rebounds. <laughs> so that was kind of like what was considered. I mean, there's no such thing now as a power forward. Yeah. Power forward doesn't exist. It's now you have basically three guards and two forwards, and maybe you describe that one guy as a, as a stretch five. Mm. I mean, I don't even know. I, I don't even know somebody that likes to be even called, be you know, pigeonholed and say, "Hey, you're a center." No, I'm not. You're a center. No, I mean, I even uh, I work for. Uh, I think it's it now just changed NBC Sports Chicago. Mm. And we do, uh, I think we're doing 48 of the Bulls games this year. We had media day, and I talked to Robin Lopez. That's about as close as you can get to an old-school center right? as far as, I guess you would determine, as a plotter, a guy that just you know angers himself down in the paint, both offensively and defensively. Can still shoot you know the 15-footer. But I asked him what he worked on this summer, and he said, well, I was working on shooting the three all summer. you know. And I, said, well, I was like, what? It was, and he said the same thing. That's the direction that the game is gone. If I want to continue to play in this league, I got to be able to, you know, at least prove that I can shoot it occasionally. I'm not going to make it part of my arsenal on a, on a nightly basis, but 
that's just the way the league is gone, and I, I want to continue to play, so I have to grow with the league. Hmm. So <clears throat> let's get back to you. Four years at Vanderbilt Rover, SEC Player of the Year, third-team All-American, uh, great career. What is going on at this point in terms of draft preparation? Who are you working out for? What are you expecting heading into the draft? Well, I just – this whole thing of playing in the NBA for me mm. didn't really – become a reality until uh, you know my junior year I was at school to play basketball to also but also get an education I wasn't really saying all right I'm going to college and then I'm going to the NBA sure you know I went to all the basketball camps you know the AAU back when I played wasn't prevalent like it is now so we went to basketball camps Stetson because I grew up in Florida University of Florida Florida State North Carolina there was a uh, camp called the BC camp in Milledgeville, Georgia, Bolton Cronauer, where it was invitation only. College coaches would come in, they would speak, and they really stressed education because they talked about, you know, of all, and this, this stat still holds true today, of all the sports in college, 1% go to play professionally. You're talking about football, mm. basketball, baseball, those, you know, makes and they. I remember they gave this handout of like fifty questions. They answer these questions to try to help you which school to go to. And Vanderbilt was the one that came up as the winner for numerous reasons, as did all of them from an academic standpoint. But you know, I wanted to make sure that I was prepared for, and I still use that term today, the real world. Meaning, hey, sure. I got to go out and get a job. You know, <laughs> nine to five. So I wanted to be prepared the best I could. But then all of a sudden, my junior year, occasionally, uh, you know, a stranger, as we determined it, would come to practice. And I remember one day, my, the assistant coach, Ed Martin, came up to me and says, hey, you know who that guy is? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> he says, well, you're starting to garner the attention of NBA scouts. So I really didn't think about playing in the NBA until the summer leading into my senior year. And that's kind of when everything changed. But then to fast forward, after my senior year, as I'm preparing you know, for the draft, it was back then it was the Washington Bullets. Now they're called the Wizards. Mm. Um, you know, the Phoenix Suns, the Chicago Bulls, the Charlotte Hornets were coming into the league, the Miami Heat. You know, I was predicted to be anywhere from, you know, 5 to 15 as far as depending on the needs of teams. And, you know, it was kind of, you know, Rick Smith obviously was the best center coming out. And then there was kind of like a, you know, Ronnie Cycli, myself. You know, we were kind of like that second, I don't want to say second tier guys, but there yeah. obviously was Smiths. And then, you know, the other centers after him were, you know, you, don't, you didn't necessarily have all the, the draft boards and all the stuff like you have mm -hmm. now. So it was just a, a tedious process of, you know, going from one, one team to the other in regards to, you know, uh, FaceTime, individual workouts with those teams, medical workouts, psychological examinations. Um, you know, it was, they were very thorough as far as trying to find out anything and everything regarding you from a mental aspect, from a physical aspect, from a psychological aspect. It was, it, uh, it, it was, I mean, I, I came away from some of those visits shaking my head being like, I'm not really sure what they got out of that, but there's, <laughs> there's some, 
I mean, it, it's just, it was quite, quite odd sometimes. Yeah. Some of the things they would ask you to do. So you end up going number 11 to the Bulls in the 88 draft. And we cut ahead a couple of seasons. The Bulls are running on all cylinders. The team finishes 61-21. You guys win your first NBA championship. What's it like to win that first title? Yeah, I specifically remember being in Los Angeles. And it's, it's kind of like a an unreal feeling. I just remember kind of being numb. Mm-hmm. And it really didn't hit me until you see like Bill Cartwright, a guy who's been through a lot with the New York Knicks and now with the Bulls, you know, crying because we won. And, you know, the, the elation and joy of John Paxson mm. because we won. Um, it, it, because I had never really experienced anything like that. I really didn't know how to respond. So I kind of was just, looking at others and, and feeding off what they were doing. You know, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was unexpected because we weren't supposed to beat the Lakers. But, you know, at that point, it wasn't like I was, you know, I, I, I was an important part, but it wasn't like I was playing 30 minutes a game. And I don't want to say I wasn't fully vested, but I also had been in the league and experienced the things that Bill Cartwright had dealt right. with, the adversity, the injuries, um, you know, the roller coaster ride that John Paxson had had over his career, uh, or Craig Hodges, or so you know, I, it was it was almost like more joy for them than for myself. I, I don't want to say I took it for granted, but I'm like, well, I'm a lot younger than these guys. I'm going to have more opportunities, and yeah, you know, I just kind of went forward from there. So the next two seasons also end in championships. It's fair to say things are going well for you in your NBA career, and. Uh, with megastars like Michael Jordan and Scotty and Phil Jackson around, at the time, did you have any sense of scope and were you aware of how special this group you were a part of was? Um, well, first of all, obviously knowing about Michael Jordan, absolutely. But then you just see, you know, what the player that Scotty becomes. Mm-hmm. And you, you start looking around the league and you see how few of these guys there really are. And, you know, after we win the second one, then you realize that's, that to me was when I was really dialed in and understood uh, the scope of which, you know, what we were accomplishing. And then going into the next year, you know, being the favorites again. And then that's when, I don't, I don't want to say it, it took the fun out of it, but then it be, hmm. it, 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 be, it wasn't, it wasn't as enjoyable because it's just now you're defending something. Right. You, you accept the challenge. You, you figure out ways to ne- navigate the regular season, but all of a sudden you're now, you know, the team with the X on your back. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a good position to be in, but it's also, you know, you're now expected to be on all every night over 82 games. You're not supposed to lose a game all year. Mm. and every time you do lose a game or lose two games in a row, there's something wrong. What needs to be <laughs> fixed? What's wrong? You know, because we, we were a super team like you have what the definition they use now, but, you know, when you're the favorite and you're not, you know, beating everybody by 20, you know, people want to people wanna know what's going on. What's wrong with your team? And that that, that kind of took the joy out of it because all of a sudden now you're going into the third straight year 
the two previous years you played into late June. There's not been much of an off season because, you know, you go till late June and then uh, training camp starts, you know, the first part, first week in October and mentally and physically you're, you're kind of worn down. I mean, you're talking about coming for me, a guy that, you know, on average was 15 to 20 minutes a game, 10 mm-hmm. minutes here. You know, I wasn't putting in the minutes that Michael was, Scotty was, you know, so you can only imagine how those guys felt, but, you know, it's to do what we did and can do it for three years straight and to stay that in tune, that focused over that time period is impressive. And that's the same thing you could say about what Golden State is doing right now, what Cleveland has been able to do, those players. Because that's the hard part people don't understand is, is the mental fatigue that you deal with during that time frame. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, 82 games. I understand, you know, physical fatigue. But, mm-hmm. you know, mental fatigue could even be greater than the actual physical fatigue that you deal with over an 82-game season and then the playoffs. And you're talking about three straight years of over 100 games. Right. So you say that there's only so many of these guys in the league, but it kind of seems like you were a magnet for them because after that, after your time in Chicago is over, you get traded to San Antonio for Dennis Rodman. And with San Antonio, you have a group of Tim Duncan and David Robinson. What's it like to go up against those guys in practice every day? Well, for me, that was, that was, that was really fun. I mean, honestly, um, that trade as disappointed as I was because, mm-hmm. you know, the previous year, Michael had come back. Uh, we end up losing the Orlando Magic in the second round of the playoffs. Um, you know, coming in the next season, Michael's now. This is a personal attack on Michael because his team didn't win. Yeah, he's going to be motivated. He's going to play with a chip on his shoulder, and we're probably going to be the favorites in the Eastern Conference. But you know, that was also the summer of the lockout. A week before uh, the lockout gets settled, the next week before practice starts, the lockout gets settled. The next day, I get traded. And at first, that was really a bummer, but then that really kind of changed uh, for the better for me, um, the player that I knew I could become. Because in Chicago, I was just like, okay, we need you as a passer in the triangle. We need you to, you know, anchor the defense on the back end. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I don't want to say I become pigeonholed, but basically by that point, I'd been in the league long enough where, you know, I'd, I'd been labeled and this is who Will Purdue is. I remember going to San Antonio. Greg Popovich was the general manager. Bob Hill was the coach. And they sat me down. They said, all right, here's the deal. We traded for you for a reason. You got four weeks to prove to us what you can do. And basically four weeks. I say four weeks because that was the preseason. You had mm-hmm. eight preseason games, four weeks of practice. And then you you know, started a regular season. They said, you got four weeks to prove to us what you can do. And that first year, that four weeks was going up against David Robinson every day, sometimes mm-hmm. twice a day. And I thought that made me a much better player. Um, it was refreshing to have a coach tell me that, uh, you know, if you can do this, then show us. If you can do that, then show us. We have no preconceived notion of who you are. We have an idea of what you can do and how you can help us, but if we want you to show us what you think you can do. Mm-hmm. And I'd never really had a coach tell me that before. Hmm. And so – that was refreshing and that kind of just re-energized me as far as it was almost like, Hey, I was starting over again, but with all this experience 
And that was really helpful as far as me becoming, you know, um, I felt serving a much more important role with San Antonio than I did with Chicago. So I want to play a little name association with you. And I like to do this with everybody. I've got to tell you that this is the longest list I've ever had for anyone on this show because the sheer amount of sensational basketball players that you've been around is just incredible. I get this amazing list. So first thing that comes to your mind, Michael Jordan. Best player ever. Scottie Pippen. And I hesitate because that's a hard one. Mm-hmm. At, because at that time, he was probably a, a top five player. Um, he was Kevin Durant before there was Kevin Durant, but also a much, much better all-around defender. Mm-hmm. Uh, Horace Grant. Yeah. God, it's so difficult because it's just... <laughs> I know, summing people up in a couple of words. Um, he was he was the, the blue-collar guy that didn't like necessarily like his job, mm-hmm. but did it anyways and was really good at it. John Paxson. Brazilian. Bill Cartwright. Uh, a fighter. He could have easily, with the injuries that he suffered and and uh, the adversity that he faced, he could have easily walked away from the game. But he continued. I mean, it's when you watch him walk now, he looks broken physically. Yeah. But uh, he's one of those guys that fully, as I t- mentioned earlier in our discussion, he fully enjoyed those years when we won the championships because of the hardship and the adversity he had dealt, probably more physically than anything else. B.J. Armstrong. A uh, thinker, Steve under, Kerr. underappreciated. Agreed. Steve Kerr. Uh, an adapter. Just, he bounced around the league, but he found a way to stick. Player who I've always really liked, Tony Kukoc. Misunderstood. What do you mean by that? Well, unfortunately for Tony... His favorite guy, the guy that loved him probably more than he loved his son, was Jerry Krause. Okay. And he kept talking about how good a player this guy was and how he's going to help our team. And the guys took that the wrong way. Yeah. And that made things very difficult for Tony when he first came into the league because he didn't have a lot of support with the Bulls. Not that guys didn't like him. Mm-hmm. But it was almost like guys took it upon themselves to prove to Tony and to Jerry, hey, this guy isn't as good as you think he is. They had a lot of guys that made things really hard on him. Sure. Uh, David Robinson. Uh, being a military guy, I say yeah, efficient. Tim Duncan. Best power forward to ever play the game. And you notice how I said power forward. I, I heard that. I did hear that. Sean Elliott. Um, the catalyst. 
Dominique Wilkins. Okay, it's kind of, I want to go back for a second. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because you mentioned, okay, you get traded to San Antonio where they have David Robinson, and then eventually we get Tim Duncan. Mm-hmm. Without Sean Elliott, we, we don't we don't win the championship in, in 99. Mm-hmm. Um, because of David, because of Tim, I don't think he got the credit he deserved. And back in that time frame, I mean, he was he was an all-star. But I felt like he was overlooked. And he was kind of like the catalyst, the difference maker that really helped us win that championship in 99. Criminally underrated for his career. Absolutely. Dominique. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can leave it there, honestly. Uh, well, I got to play with him towards the end of his career. Uh-huh. So... Um, What's the best way? Uh, a conniving stat stuffer. <laughs> uh, how about Detlef Shrimp? He just, in my opinion, is, was a very intelligent individual who really understood how to play the game. And I was very fortunate to get to know him but also to spend some time with him just to kind of to pick his brain. He, he uh, was a guy that was uh, attacked the, the game a little differently, more so maybe from an analytical standpoint mm. than just from a, a pure athletic standpoint. How about Steve Smith? I think he kind of falls into that mold of a Sean Elliott, just yeah. underappreciated of, you know, how good he was. Um, because of, uh, unfortunately for him, the teams he played on earlier in his career, he didn't get the notoriety he deserved. Yeah, he would be outstanding in a modern-day NBA with his skill set. Oh, absolutely. Because he, again, can play numerous positions, both offensively and defensively. How about Sean Kemp? He might he. He's probably the guy that had the, the most raw talent that I've ever seen in an individual. How about Rashid Wallace? I, I uh, angry, but and I always I always tell the story about him. For whatever reason, and he. He just always seemed to be angry mm. when he played. I don't know if that was his mechanism of, of how he motivated himself, but yet when he got kicked out of games, he would, once he calmed down, he would go in the family room. And obviously this is when I was with the Portland Trailblazers. He would go in the family room, get on his knees and then play basketball with all the kids <laughs> in the family room. I mean, he was just, he was kind of like a little boy in a man's body, but yet was always very angry when he played. I can, I can totally see that. I was around Rashid a little bit for when I was young for a basketball tournament that he was playing in. And it was very much that just messing around with everybody before, before games, after games. A good guy, but then once the whistle blows, a completely different guy. Yep. Uh, Damon Stoudemire. Um, I like the term Mighty Mouse. I mm. think he was just 
you know, the first player that I experienced that of his size that was as good as he was. You know, everybody's talking about Bugsy Bogues and guys that had been in the league, but, you know, those guys before him, Spud Webb, uh, they didn't have the ability, the skill set that Damon Stoudemire had. And last one of these I have for you is uh, an interesting one. Arvidas Sabonis. I'm going to use the word unfortunate. Yeah. Because he was still a really good player when he came to the NBA, but everybody that I've talked to, from international scouts to guys that I played with that played uh, Olympics, there's really there's not a lot of people that refute the, the thought that he was at one time the best player in the world. Yeah. But yet, unfortunately, we never saw that guy on American soil until he was to, at the back half of his career. Still good, but not great. All right. Well, I know you've got some time issues, so I want to get you out of here. The last thing I'm going to ask you is uh, I can't let you leave without one Jordan story. Well, it's, um, I mean, there's a lot of basketball stories, mm-hmm. but the one that I always talk about is, is that people think that, that fame is great and it's enjoyable. And, but, you know, when I first got drafted by the Bulls, you know, they always do the, the Bulls magazine. And you get the, the Q&A of favorite food, favorite movie, you know, player you'd like to be for a day. And I put down mm. Michael Jordan. And I was like, God, I'd love to be that guy. Cause you're, you just think about it from a, a basketball standpoint, how good he is. You don't think about all the other stuff that comes with it. Right. And when I first came in the league, we didn't fly. We weren't chartering planes around. We were flying commercial just like everybody else. So, you know, the league had a rule that if you play back to backs, you have to take the first flight out the next day. So, you know, we uh, had played a game the night before. So that usually means most uh, cities have a 6 a.m. flight. So that was a 4 a.m. wake up. Bus leaves at 4.30 for the airport. Get there at 5, check in, you know, go through security just like everybody else. Handed your paper ticket. Get on the plane. Fly to wherever we're going. Like most men. When you get off a plane, what's the first thing you do? You just you walk to the bathroom, right? Sure. Well, Michael, you know, we all, just like everybody else, we got a bag over our shoulder. We walk into the bathroom, you know, uh, again, at the airport. So there's, you know, it's just, it's busy, hustle and bustle. And uh, Michael goes into one of the stalls where he closes the door. And this dude comes in and he basically says, Hey man, since you're going to be in there for a minute, sticks a piece of paper and a pen underneath the door oh. and says, "Hey, can you sign this for me?" Oh. And I just remember looking at that and I'm like, "This guy has no privacy. He has no time to himself. He can't just walk out of a hotel and say, "Hey, I'm going to go check out Salt Lake City, or I'm going to go out and check out San Francisco, or I'm going to go and check out L.A." He just he can't do it. Yeah. And that's when my thought about, I don't want to be Michael Jordan. I want to be Michael Jordan from a basketball standpoint, but I don't want to be Michael Jordan the person because it's just, that's a very hard job, a very hard task of right. you, you experience something like that. And you're just like, 
you got to be kidding me. <laughs> but yet, it didn't phase him. He made some smart-ass comment. We all kind of chuckled, and the guy walked off without the autograph. Right. But yet, this was, his, this was what he dealt with 24-7. There was no, hey, I'm going to take the day off and be, be in Michael Jordan. That did not exist. And I don't think people really, you know, think about that part when somebody says, hey, who do you want to be for a day? Yeah. So I'm going to let this go with a yes, no, maybe answer. This will be the last thing I ask you. Uh, most, one of the, the most crazy out there conspiracy theories in NBA history is, uh, is Michael Jordan centric. And that would be that the NBA secretly suspended him that year. He decided to go play minor league baseball. Yes. No, maybe. I'd have to say no. And I, I'll expand on that. I'm okay with that. I mean, the guy loved, the guy loved to gamble. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Charles Barkley made a very interesting quote one time. He says, listen, I understand it's gambling, but if you can afford to do it, is it wrong? Sure. And I'll tell another Michael Jordan story in regards to that. He just, he, but the thing is, I don't think he saw it as gambling. He saw it as competing. Mm. And I think this is what he saw. Let's let's you know let's make it a little more interesting by taking it to the next level. And and what I mean by that is is that he always wanted the upper hand, regardless of what he was doing. When we were once we finally went from uh, commercial flights to charters, you know we would all spread out on the plane, and uh, Michael, Scotty, Horace. Um, Jack Haley, whoever, Ron Harper, those three guys always always had a, a pigeon guy that they would bring in there. And they would play cards in the back of the plane. Well, me, John Paxson, Bill Cartwright, Eddie Neely, Craig Hott, whoever it was, uh, you know, as players filtered through, we'd be up in the front of the plane. And we, we'd play blackjack for a dollar. <laughs> you know? One day, Michael comes up to the front of the plane. He goes, hey, I heard you guys are playing cards up here. What's going on? I'm like, yeah. He goes, what are you doing? We're just playing blackjack. And he goes, you mind if I play? I just remember Pat's going, why do you want to play with us? We're only playing for a dollar. It's a dollar a hand. Mm-hmm. You play for hundreds of dollars in the back of the plane. Why do you want to do that? And his answer was, because I want to say I have your money in my pocket. <laughs> So I'm not even sure he looked at it as gambling. I think he just looked at it as another form of being able to compete right. and to find a way to beat you. Just kind of the ultimate competitor thing, that, that that innate trait that sort of maybe Kobe shared a little bit. Now, there's very few guys I think you could say that are, have that mentality. And I think a perfect example of that is, is when you go back to Michael's Hall of Fame speech, it left a lot of people scratching their heads. Mm-hmm. Because they kind of came out and said, well, I, he wasn't very thankful. I was like, well, you obviously don't know Michael Jordan. Well, I appreciate your time. I don't want to take up any more of it. So this has been Tales from the Association. I'm Chris Horwardell. Will Purdue, thanks so much for coming and talking to me. Oh, Chris, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much.